From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Hey, how are you? Beautiful, beautiful uh, weather we're enjoying here as we get into uh, autumn. Always a special time of year for me. You know, even at my age, I still get up this time of year and I'm thinking, you know, it's time to go back to school. I don't know what it is. It's something that stays with you. Going back to school, had the boys out at an apple farm, uh, maybe an, out, an hour outside of Toronto, picking apple, time to bake the pies, uh, the harvest is uh, now in full throttle. A great time of year, and we're getting some wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, weather, what they, they used to call Indian summer, although I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. And I don't know why it... Uh, if there's anyone who knows why we call it an Indian summer, I'd be uh, curious to know. However, this has always been one of my favorite times of the year. Always, always a pleasure as well to welcome a good friend into the studio who sits across from me as we speak, Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Z-Land News Network. Victor, how are you? Just fine, thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here. And uh, for you, you're going out and you're uh, you know, visiting some of the local libraries and talking about UFOs. How's that going? That's great. Actually, I just finished a presentation last week. It's just sort of a, it's a demand thing. Uh, people are asking for it, and uh, the, it started off in a very small way. And now it's kind of growing, and it's sort of beyond the expectations that I set for myself earlier. So what we're, people are asking yeah. for this. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Why? Well, part of it is because we're not talking to the choir. Um, in, initially, when I first started doing this, you do conferences or whatever, and you speak to people who are pretty well um, proficient in their knowledge of, of the UFO phenomenon. But I set out um, a mandate for myself that I wanted to speak to people who didn't know too much about this. And we began inviting people in small ways to come out and listen to different kinds of uh, presentations. And oddly enough, uh, that grew. An audience of, you know, 15 or 20 grew into, you know, 40 or 50. And then one of the other presentations I did about uh, six months ago, there was 97 people just flocked into the doors of a public library, and they didn't have any room for them. These are all people who want to know this stuff, and they're not experts at it at all. They're just interested. Is there one document, because I know you give a Mm -hmm. really effective PowerPoint presentation. Uh, Is there one document that you splash up on the screen that really rocks the audience, has them just reeling afterwards? Two of them, actually. The, The Wilbert Smith memo that states that UFOs are real, and goes on to describe his encounter with people in Washington. That's one that really... This is a Canadian who worked for the Ministry of Transportation, I believe. That's right. And was the guy that was assigning the AM and FM frequencies for radio stations in Canada. Precisely. The Department of Transport, yeah. So he went down to the States, met with some top mucky mucks in the Mm -hmm. military brass, Mm -hmm. and... Basically, they revealed to him that UFOs were real. That's right. That's one document that really catches people uh, kind of off guard because they don't think that Canada is sort of front and center with this issue the way it really is. What about Roswell? Uh, the Roswell stuff, other than verbal testimony that I have on record, there really aren't any uh, specific documents that we have. But the one big document that I rely on a lot uh, to, cho- to show that the United States government and the CIA has been sort of, uh, you know, hand in glove and all, this is, is a CIA document that says, this states blatantly that the CIA will control the media on how they um, you know, d- disseminate the information about UFOs. It's a very clear document. It's on their own website, as a matter of fact. And uh, that one catches people off guard, too. They don't really realize that the government has been talking about this stuff 
for for well over 60 years behind the scenes. And uh, I, I try to convince people or at least enlighten them about the fact that uh, the United States government, along with the UK government, even Canada, too, have been discussing this stuff behind the scenes for, for well over 60 years. And that's not something that the average person knows. Well, you know what did it for me? Uh, in that, in that, you introduced me to uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was our, on, our our defense minister back in the uh, the Pearson uh, government in the uh, mid to late 60s, also the deputy prime minister under Trudeau. This was a guy a heartbeat away from being the prime minister of Canada. Mm-hmm. And you were very instrumental in getting him to talk publicly uh, at an event, uh, what, about six years ago, the University of Toronto, in which here we have the deputy, former deputy prime minister standing up and saying, and, and he repeated this to me in an interview I did with him, that everything we heard, we've heard about Roswell, is true. UFO crashes, alien bodies recovered, autopsies, all of that stuff. And he got that, again, from top military people in the United States. That's what rocked my world. Yeah, Paul was one of the individuals that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is probably most one of the most credible, high-level cabinet officials uh, on the planet that has come forward. And without his testimony, I don't think that uh, a lot of the stuff that we know about UFOs right now would be as credible as, in, in fact, it really is. And Paul's done a, a great job in making himself available to the authorities, specifically in Washington, at the, at the hearings last May. And uh, he's really done a whole lot in his, both in his books and in his testimony and in his uh, conference uh, speaking schedule to, to make right. sure that individuals uh, at the high levels, he's trying to convince people at the high levels to come forward and say, listen, you know this stuff, why not come forward? And one of the really specific things that we kind of looked at uh, at the hearings was uh, Senator Mike Gravel, who um, was on the panel at the citizen hearings, and uh, we'll have more to say about him a little bit later yes, on. Yes, indeed. Well, and the thing that really set Hellier down this road was Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. Someone gave it to him, you know, for some nice summer reading at the cottage. Okay. He read that book, changed his life, went down to the United States, got confirmation on those things, and again, it comes back to Roswell. And we're talking about something that happened now nearly 70 years ago, this is ground zero for a lot of people when it comes to the UFO issue, the, the uh, yes. Roswell, and, and we are really in a race against time because a lot of the people that have firsthand knowledge are passing away. Jesse Marcel Jr. just passed. And, just recently, yeah. Well, there's an individual who knows better than most about the race against time, the race with the undertaker, if you will, in terms of getting witnesses uh, who knew about Roswell, who were, with, who were there and have firsthand knowledge to go on the record. Uh, in fact, he's really made it his, his life work. And we're going to uh, welcome him aboard now. Don Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years prior to that. He was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. He graduated from MATC with a degree in commercial art and graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's presently taking graduate courses in criminal justice. Schmidt is, uh, Don Schmidt is the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of two best-selling books, UFO Crash at Ro- Roswell, uh, Avon 1991, best-selling Witness to Roswell from New Page Books, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, and of course, he has a, a brand new book uh, that he has co-authored, uh, The Real Area 51, and it's always a pleasure to welcome Don Schmidt back to The Conspiracy Show. Don, how are you? Just fine, Richard, and you as well, Victor. Great to be back with both of you. Thank you. Yeah, glad to have you with us. We wanted to talk about uh, your work in in 
interviewing some of the key witnesses and, and, and documenting what uh, yes. they've had to say regarding Roswell. And here we are, uh, my gosh, 66, almost 67 years later. How many key witnesses are still left? We just lost Jesse well, Marcel Jr. Yes, and that's a prime example of how we're now losing the children of the witnesses at Roswell. I mean, nonetheless, Jess Jr. certainly was a first-hand witness himself, but still, he was only 11 years old at the time. So it it strikes us all the more ardently that uh, now we're losing the children as well. Um, there's nothing more frustrating, and it's never been a case of where people have come forward to us. That's typically a red flag when someone calls or emails us you know, my father this or my husband this. It's, uh, you know, we're very leery of such open um, approaches on the parts of potential witnesses. But typically they are very reluctant. They're very, you know, aware of their security oaths that they took back in 1947. It's one of the reasons that so many of them have finally just left deathbed testimonies which are admissible in a court of law here in the United States. So they're accepted as physical evidence. And nonetheless, the frustration, as you mentioned, the race with the undertaker, and when we finally track down a, a, a crucial individual, and it's taken us this long, and we learned that they just passed away a year ago, or in some cases a month ago. There was one particular case where we called up and we spoke to the wife just as she was returning from the cemetery. Oh, my. And just that close. To... Just that close. And there's nothing more finite, more absolute, and to know that whatever information they possess is gone forever. Now, I, I find it, you know, amusing, but even as appalling that the skeptics, that they feel that eyewitness testimony is not only unreliable, but they don't consider the very fact that all of our history books are based on nothing more than eyewitness accounts, that the very uh, events that we teach our young people throughout their, their, their schooling is based on eyewitness testimony, that every day people are convicted, are potentially placed, you know, as far as on death row, or, you know, lifetime imprisonment based on nothing more than eyewitness testimony, circumstantial evidence. And yet when it comes to an event where we have interviewed to date over 600 people, either directly or indirectly involved, and a growing legion of deathbed testimony that I'll talk about not only the recovery of this extraordinary wreckage, this material that defied conventional explanation. The memory material. Uh, the memory material. This, this other material that was was nigh indestructible, nearly indestructible. And most amazingly of all, the little people, the little men. Invariably, the deathbeds. The way they finally confide to their wives, their children, how I was involved with the recovery. I was at the big hangar when they brought the bodies in. I was at the base hospital when they brought the gurneys in. And as one of the people, one of the witnesses put it, they sure weren't from Texas. So they they knew, they, they, they made that distinction that they weren't dealing with something biological 
as far as some type of an experiment. They knew they were dealing with something truly off the planet. All right, Don, we'll take a time out. Don Schmidt with us, who has co-authored Inside the Real Area 51, startling new evidence or eyewitness accounts, along with Thomas J. Carey. Uh, in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network, as we talk about Roswell deathbed confessions and beyond, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Deathbed confessions from Roswell. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio and on the line, uh, Don Schmidt, the uh, co-author of Inside the Real uh, Area 51, and also a man who has organized the three only archaeological dig projects at the actual Roswell crash debris field. They were conducted in 1989, 2002, 2006. And the second effort, that would be in 2002, became the central theme of the highest-rated show up till that time in the 10-year history of the Sci-Fi Channel, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence, which also resulted in the book The Roswell Dig Diaries, of which he was a contributing author. Don, any other plans to go back to Roswell? Is there anything left in the ground there, do you think? Well, interesting that you should mention that without telegraphing specific dates. Uh, We are going back before the end of the year with our fourth project. So, yes, indeed. We have three archaeologists and then geologists that will be leading four separate teams, and we will be focusing on specific areas that uh, have demonstrated great promise throughout the last year and a half. We even have a fifth one planned into next year if uh, funding is available. What would you say is the most interesting, important artifact that you've uncovered in any of those digs? Have there been? For me, it was the confirmation of of the furrow, the gouge, the fact that witnesses independent of one another had taken us to a specific location where something had clearly skipped across the ground, and they described it about 10 feet wide, hundreds of feet long. And it's my contention, as even based on the press release that the Army Air Corps put out on July 8th of 1947, that the rancher had stored the disc. Well, in this case, it was the largest piece that he recovered from the debris field. Uh, we're talking about ranch foreman W.W. W. Mac Brazo. And he had dragged a large piece behind his pickup truck and stored it in a livestock shed about three miles to the, to the north of this location. I contend that it was the, the piece that created that gouge. And through the, the years of the, uh, the the rain and the prevailing wind and the cattle and sheep grazing through that area. Everything has smoothed over. Well, anyway, in 2002, we were able to bring in a backhoe, a tractor with a large shovel, to cross trench, dig through that very location. And wouldn't you know that the shovel would jump that his ground engineer even would make notation of the fact that the shovel was hitting a pocket of loose sediment. 
And as it would pull it away, there it was, the symmetrical V, just below the surface, and exactly where the witnesses had described to us the location of that gouge. So a weather balloon doesn't make a gouge in the ground of that sort. All right. We want to talk about some of these witnesses and and drill down on that. Please. Uh, Speaking of archaeological digs. And, and Victor, why don't you kick it off and uh, talk about uh, some of these witnesses? Yeah, no no matter what, for as long as I've done this, Don, you probably know this yourself, you feel it just as badly as I do, we keep on coming back to Roswell for a number of reasons, and the reasons are as long as they are wide. It just is not going away. That's That's the basic fact of the matter. One of the things that really struck me about one of the interviews you did, this young lady at the time, Frankie Rowe, I believe her dad was part of the, the, the fire department at the time, and she is very clear in her recollection about the uh, military people coming into her house and sitting down at the table. Well, first of all, her father, as you mentioned, Victor, was part of the Roswell Fire Department, and they had received a call from whether a civilian source or someone north of Roswell. This was not the debris field. This was another site where something more relevant, something more important was reported, and that was a downed aircraft. And they uh, attempted to go out with a water tanker, and her father, Dan Dwyer, would describe to the family that when they arrived, there were, was the remains of a ship, a small pod, a small capsule. There were bodies strewn about, and most fantastic of all, there was a survivor. There was one actually walking. And he would mention this to the family, and that no sooner than they had arrived, the military started to arrive at the same location and, you know, took them off to one side and warned them not to say another word, allowed them to return back to Roswell. But it was that evening that Frankie, from her bedroom, would overhear a conversation involving a officer by the name of uh, Arthur Philbin, who we confirmed, mm-hmm. and a number of other MPs, and overheard the threats to her mother. Her father wasn't home yet for the day, but the mother was told that if they ever said another word about the incident, that they would kill their children. Well, that left such an impact on Frankie that she still be, she still gets emotional over this. And I think as a very, you know, wonderful, you know, uh, act of closure was that Philbin's own son arrived at her home just this last year unannounced, with a bouquet of flowers. He presented it to Frankie. He said, if my father were still alive, I'm sure he'd want you to have this. As This is my family's way of saying we are so sorry that my father was ordered to do that, but my father was a good soldier. He did what he was told, and that's all he did. It was the only reason he did that. But we want you to have this as a gesture and ask for your forgiveness. Oh, my God. I mean, after all those years that the family would even, you know, acknowledge, you know, that, yes, that's how my father was. That's how he was. He was a big, you know, burly man, 250 pounds, six foot four, booming voice, walk into a room, and, you know, with his Brooklyn accent, he was a former New York State police officer. And, again, it's a type of story. How does someone make that up? Why would someone make that up? 
Why would the family even endorse such a situation, you know, 66 years later and say, yes, and we're sorry that my father had to follow his orders? Amazing, amazing. Yeah, the, the compelling nature of, of the kinds of things that people are coming forward with at this point, and, and the one interview that really kind of caught my, uh, my attention was the Trowbridge uh, interview. Um, and he was, he was front and center in some of the investigation. Uh, tell us about uh, his, his situation. Well, you're talking uh, uh, First Lieutenant John P. Trowbridge. He was uh, the, at headquarters. He was in intelligence of the 509th bomb wing, the first atomic bomb squadron in the world at that time, stationed at Roswell. And he was second in command directly under uh, Major Jesse Marcel, who was head of intelligence at Roswell at that time. Now, Trowbridge's son, we met uh, his son, who's a doctor, and as well as Jack, as he's called. We took them out to the debris field, and... Um, I will admit, though, Victor, I have, I cannot put his story, I can't place it as far as, or insert it into the chronology of events, Mm -hmm. because uh, it's mostly the son telling the story that his father was, you know, at the Marcel residence, they were playing cards when Jesse was gone for the day, and he returned late that evening with a car full of the debris. Well... His returning and his stopping at the house, as Jesse Jr. would describe, is, is, is accurate. But even Jesse Jr. has no recollection that anybody else was at the house at that time, especially because it was 2 o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. when he was t- taken yeah. out to the kitchen and there the debris was all scattered on the kitchen floor. Because yeah, that's so, when the, uh, the stuff was brought back in the, in the trunk of the Buick, right? That, the the uh, 48 Buick convertible, correct. Mm-hmm. Or 42, 42 does, Buick convertible. Does Jack Trowbridge claim that he handled the memory material? Yes, he does. And he describes it, you know, in a similar fashion as the others, the memory material. And I, I think it's more likely that he saw the pieces, you know, back at the base at headquarters when Jesse brought material actually to the base. I think he's just confused because they did, yes, they did play cards just as others played cards at the Marcel residence. Do, do, but, you, th- do um, you think, Don, Don, do you think that some of these small discrepancies, be they small or medium or large or whatever the case may be, that some of these discrepancies uh, give uh, way to allowing the skeptics to debunk uh, the, the entire case of Roswell? I mean, and, and, as, as spurious as that sounds, do you think that these discrepancies uh, kind of um, you know, point towards the, the debunkers having some sort of weight in saying really nothing happened? No, I think that the only true leverage or support towards any theory on the part of the skeptics would be if there should be any witnesses to suggest this was something conventional. Precisely. There are no witnesses to this being a weather balloon, a plane, a rocket. Project Mogul, which is the third official Air Force explanation for Roswell, there are no witnesses at all to that explanation. And Trowbridge... I mean, his testimony does indeed support the eyewitness accounts that this was something extraordinary. He does describe the memory material. Mm-hmm. As to the actual, you know, 
manner by which he was involved, there are some discrepancies, as there are with other witnesses. Well, the man but is, what, 95 years old? still talking about this being extraordinary. But this man is, what, 95, 96 years old now? That is correct, Richard. So yes, I think yes. we can allow a 96, 95-year-old man recollecting what happened 67 years ago, a slight discrepancy. Was he playing cards at the base or was he playing cards at the Marcel Ranch? I think, you know, <laughs> that's you're not going to throw that testimony out based on, on uh, you know, that. Precisely. It's like, um, you know, what uh, what street were you on when you happened to witness something 65 years ago? What's the memory material for those who, who may may have heard the term but aren't really familiar? What do we mean by memory material? Well, we're talking about material that was paper thin, practically weightless, that you couldn't cut, you couldn't burn. Uh, there are numerous accounts describing how they even attempted to shoot, fire a bullet through the material. Nothing was able to penetrate this material, yet you could crumble, you could crease it, you could wad it up into a ball. And when you would place it down onto a smooth surface, it would flow like water. It would just smooth right out to its original shape and size. And we don't even have such material by 2013 standards. And that's the one thing that whenever um, an author, a researcher comes up with an alternative explanation, uh, German flying wing, Soviet, you know, spy plane, um, you know, uh, some type of an atomic experiment gone awry. They do, they never account for the unusual characteristics of the material. In, because in everything of, else still is of conventional manufacture. The materials at Roswell were clearly of something extraordinary because all of the witnesses, all the eyewitnesses who handled the material, who were part of the recovery, who transported the material, who received it at right field as far as for analysis and breakdown, describe this extraordinary advanced technology that, again, defies conventional explanation. Uh, who was Sergeant Homer Rowlett? I, uh, I, I believe you've interviewed uh, his daughter, Carlene Green. Carlene Green, as well as his son, Larry, Larry Rowlett. Uh, Sergeant Homer Rowlett was a uh, member of the 603rd Air Engineering Squadron. And initially in the Roswell investigation, we paid a lot of attention to the 1395th MP, Military Police Squadron just assuming that the MPs would have been the most actively involved in the recovery and the, the, the cordoning off of the site, the security of the site. And through the years, as we've tracked down more and more people of the 1395th, we realized that, yes, they were used to secure the site, but they were on the peripheral. They would, you know, cordon off the roads. They would have checkpoints in the outlying areas. They were on the outskirts, whereas the members of the 603rd, the Air Engineering Squadron, engineers, and that's what uh, Sergeant Rowlett was, they were on the inner. They were part of the actual recovery operation. They handled the material. They were witness to the bodies. All right, listen, we'll take and, a time out. When we come back, Don, let's talk about yes. the testimony of Carlene Green, a daughter of Sergeant Rowlett. And uh, keep uh, drilling down as we discuss these very important witnesses to Roswell. Don Schmidt, one of the top Roswell investigators in the world, here with us. Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network in studio. Stay with us.
This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Roswell investigator Don Schmidt stays with us, and his latest, uh, which he co-authored with Thomas J. Carey, is Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. Uh, and we've had Don on to talk about that um, uh, before, and we'll probably touch on it again before the hour is through. Right now we're talking about some of the key witnesses uh, to Roswell, uh, the um, UFO crash of uh, 1947. And here we are still talking about it 66 years later. And uh, why? Well, because it uh, it remains, um, for many, sort of ground zero when we're talking about uh, the world of ufology and the importance of that event cannot be uh, understated. Uh, we were talking about uh, the testimony of Carlene Green, who was the daughter of uh, Sergeant Homer Rowlett. And uh, again, these these were uh, engineers that were on the inside, sort of handling the material in the crash uh, field, the debris field. What did Precisely. Carlene tell you? And just um, uh, have your... Let's just have your listeners just uh, place themselves in this situation, as in Carlene Green's case, where her elderly father, who had never admitted, conceded anything regarding the incident before, was lying on a gurney outside of an operating room just before he was to have heart surgery. And it was a life-and-death situation, and... Carlene, very nervously waiting with her father. He was still totally wide awake. And he would wave her down in his weakened condition so she could hear him. And he would describe to her how, sweetheart, do you remember how I was stationed at Roswell back in 1947? Well, let me tell you what really happened. And he would confide to her that he was part of the recovery operation that it was indeed the recovery of a genuine flying saucer and that there were little people, there were beings, there were, you know, little men that were not human, that he had seen them, and one was alive. Now, unbeknownst to Carlene, he had already, before going into the hospital, told exactly the same story to her brother Larry. And Larry, you know you know, was able to exchange notes with his sister later that, uh, yes, indeed, their father provided both of them with this deathbed testimony, thinking that he would not have another opportunity. And as his days did dwindle down, that he made sure that his son and daughter knew not only that Roswell was true, but that he was a participant, that he was part of that recovery operation, that he saw it firsthand, that he it wasn't a case of just repeating what he had heard, but that he indeed had seen, he had carried that information with him his entire life and finally was able to share it because he felt, what could the government do to him at that time? He only had days left, and he provided deathbed testimony that, again, would be admissible, would be physical evidence in any court of law here in the United States. Don, one of the other things that, I, that I'd like to, um, to to approach with you, 
uh, and I'm not sure if it's still the case or not, but in 1996, I had a uh, really um, great opportunity to speak with Louise Proctor. And, yes. Yeah. Now, Loretta she, Proctor, yes. Yeah, Loretta Proctor. Um, is she still alive, first of all? Is she still with she us? She is still alive. She's still she's, with us? Okay. Uh, she's almost 100 years old. My goodness, isn't that something? And uh, she's, she's, she's blind, but uh, she's still very sharp. Right. And I, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Loretta, Victor, because I promised uh, a call to her over this past week. So um, I'll say hello for you. Okay. And, and who was Loretta Proctor? Yeah. Yeah. Loretta Proctor and her late husband, Floyd, they lived on the nearest ranch to the ranch that Mac Brazo, it was the foster ranch that Brazo managed. He was the foreman of at that time. Just imagine your nearest neighbor being 10 miles away. Well, Brazo, in an attempt to have someone else look at this strange material, he took it to Floyd and Loretta Proctor. So they were also witnesses to this material, this material that defied conventional explanation. As it also turns out, the Proctor's uh, youngest son, Timothy D., who was seven years old at that time, and being during the summer, no school, uh, D. would spend a lot of time helping Mac with the ranch. So he would, you know, help, you know, herding the sheep and managing uh, the cattle. So he was with Mac Brazel when he actually discovered the debris field. So he was also returning their son back to their ranch. And Tim, Tim would gather up some of the neighbor boys, some of the other ranch boys, and they made their way back out to the debris field. And Loretta, to this day, still describes how her late son, D, after he returned home, it was as though he had the fear of God scared into him. He was snow white. It was as though he had seen a ghost because the military really shook him up. They really put a, a place to scare into him in such a way that he seldom, if ever, talked about it even to his own family, that they really, really scared him. All right, we'll uh, step away for a moment, come right back with Don Schmidt, Roswell investigator, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network, talking about deathbed confessions from Roswell. Back in a moment, don't go away. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740. It's so true when you talk to skeptics. You know, they, they want evidence. They want evidence. And then, uh, I mean, short of having, you know, a, a piece of the actual craft, you, you, uh, you give them 600 names of individuals uh, who are all telling basically the same story, uh, aspects of the, uh, the story. Saw bodies, saw the craft, handled pieces of the craft. Uh, um, helped transport the bodies, saw the bodies, you know, being transported. It's on and on and on. It goes 600 and counting. Uh, then what did the skeptics say in the face of that evidence? Well, eyewitness testimony is not reliable. Well, for Pete's sake, our criminal justice system system is based on, I mean, people have gone to the electric chair based on eyewitness testimony. Are we supposed to, uh, you know, what do we do with that now? My word, Don Schmidt uh, is here, Roswell investigator. Uh, his brand new book is uh, Inside the Real Area 51. 
And uh, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network is with us as well. Now, Victor, you were telling me off the air about your conversation with Loretta Proctor. This was, again, a neighbor, the nearest neighbor to uh, the ranch where Mac Brazel, you know, found the uh, found the debris. Yeah. And what did she tell you? Well, basically, it's, it was rather uh, – I tried to contact uh, Loretta. Uh, actually, I did contact her by telephone. I wanted to go over to, to her place and just speak with her while I was in the area. And uh, she said, well, you can't come over here because the, the roads have been washed out. So, <laughs> I mean, she was just a... That's a common occurrence out there. Oh, for yes. sure, yeah. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay, can you just tell me a little about, uh, a little bit about what you went through? And, uh, I mean, you and Max, and, and she recounted very, very vividly. And, and, uh, and, you know, some of these elderly folks can really have a way of describing things uh, with a specificity that some young people just don't understand. And anyway, she said, yeah, Max brought that stuff over here, and we sat in the front porch, and, and you know, me and Floyd, we looked at that stuff, and it did stuff. We we just could, and she just kept on going on and on about this material, how they tried to crumple it up and, and, and drive a nail through it or cut it up somehow. And it just impressed me, Don, that, you know, when someone like that, just out of the blue, sees something so extraordinary, and when they react to it in the way that Loretta did, um, it just, it just, it, there's so much compelling, um, you know, human emotion behind it that um, it just sort of eludes uh, credibility why people don't pay more attention to that kind of testimony. And you take a look at situations like the Phoenix Lights and, and, and the Roswell situation and the Chicago airport. These waves of evidence keep on coming forward and they lap up into the shore and just... You know, they, they just seem to be disregarded by, by media and all of the people who have the capacity to bring this stuff forward. It's all just ignored. Doesn't that frustrate you? Let me you? ask if it's, if it's also your perception. It, 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 to me, it, it, it's, it clearly appears that they're digging in, that the skeptics, the scoffers, mm-hmm. as though, I mean, they're becoming more entrenched with the fact that I don't think they've ever been threatened as much as, as to their, their own ideology. Mm-hmm. They have placed so much at stake as far as in their position, their disbelief. Their disbelief is basically their religion in all this. And because it has never been so threatened, so challenged before, that they are, you know, personally attacking us more than ever. They are attacking the witnesses more than ever. If they're so convinced that nothing is there, that nothing happened, why do they even care? Why do they continue mm-hmm. to challenge and debate and, you know, pursue us at every turn? God knows we sure don't pay any attention to what they say and do. Who was Savage Dodson? Uh, Dodson just was um, one of the engineers also. He worked at the hangar, one of the hangars at the other side of the base. And in his case, he really didn't see anything. He just remembered that when he was to report to his hangar, which was near the operations building, that they were they were basically told to stay in their barracks, not to report to duty that day, and that he he immediately sensed and he observed a lockdown on the base, that there was a strong military presence, security presence, that something big had happened. And what also surprised him that as quickly as it reached that crescendo, it immediately dropped off as though everything had been cleared out, that everything had returned to normal. But more specifically that everybody was told not to say a word, 
to behave as though nothing had happened. If anybody asked you about anything, you didn't know anything. If any asked you about the flying saucers, you don't know anything. You're not to say another word. And that's one of the great things about uh, guys like Dobson, that instead of embellishing, instead of, you know, inserting themselves into the storyline, they basically, you know, this is all I saw. This is all I observed. I can't say I saw this or that because I didn't. So they're very truthful in their accounts. They, and what's wonderful is they're all part of the same puzzle, the same mosaic that you can plug in. And none of them are contradicting the other. None of them are saying, well, no, you didn't. I was the one who did this. I was the one who drove the flatbed truck. I was the one who was out there gathering up the pieces. I was the one who piloted uh, this Pacific flight. That's right. They like don't. all the millions of baseball fans who claim they were at Ebbets Field, you know, when the Giants won the pennant or was it the Polo Grounds? I don't know. But <laughs> Or even for the detonation of the first atomic bomb in uh, Carrizozo, New Mexico. How many people? Well, I saw the flash. Even if they weren't born, I saw the flash. Right. But that's not the case with Roswell. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about this, that they aren't contradicting one another, that they're all supporting one another's testimony. And I think that's just grand. Where is the – there's got to be one piece of that, a little tiny piece of that memory material in somebody's hands down there, tucked away in a box under a bed. I mean – what is your sense that that, it, that oh, Richard, uh, is I, it still on the ground? I can't tell you how many times we have had false alarms, how many times we've rushed, you know, down to New Mexico or down to Texas or down to Florida because someone claimed that there was still a piece in a old footlocker up in an attic or behind a wall down in a basement, and always coming up shorthanded. But we continue to search the area where the debris was. We know it's a, it's a needle in a haystack. We realize that. But at least we're performing due diligence. Again, the skeptics who have never been there whenever it came to, you know, tracking down the witnesses, they've never participated in their own archaeological projects. They've never examined the documents, the photographs. They've never interviewed the witnesses except to attack them from afar where it's safe and you know, there's nothing that uh, they would risk in challenging someone face to face. They take the more cowardly route of just sitting in judgment from a thousand miles away. And yet, we're the proactive ones. We're the ones that continue to try to get these people to go on the record while we still have time. And we'll be digging in the ground again in a few weeks because we remain confident that that piece of that holy grail may still be out there. Listen, let me ask you something. Uh, we sat in that big room in Washington, D.C. Yes. at the press club <laughs> for, for five days. And, quite an experience. Uh, yes. Yeah, quite the experience. And uh, I watched you and uh, I guess Kevin, Kevin Randall and all of the other witnesses uh, come Jesse forward. Marcel Jr., right. The, the, whole, the whole group. And it was a historic event. And you do what you do, you've done what you've done, and you're going to do what you're going to do. I just want to ask you, Don, uh, what keeps you going on this? What, what, what compels you to keep on going? You know, I was asked that question by Miles O'Brien when he was uh, senior science editor at CNN. Why are you still doing this? What keeps you going? You know, after all these years, why do you continue this? 
And I looked him square in the eye, and I said, because you won't. And he didn't like that. Wow. But I guess that is the problem, that because especially with the American press, the American media, media because they won't, we have to. Yeah. You and Richard have to. Mm-hmm. All of our colleagues have to. Because if we don't, we're, we, you know, we're on the brink of potentially the biggest story of the millennium. And I, for one, want to be there if it's ever disclosed, if it's ever un- uncovered. I don't want to quit the day before <laughs> and then right. you know, you know, sit and regret for the rest of my life. Yeah. Damn it, I could have been there. I want to be there. The subject of your, your new book, Inside the Real Area 51, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, is, is, yes. is that is, – do all trails from Roswell lead to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base? All is that trails lead to Wright-Patterson. Yeah, it's the aftermath. All the previous Roswell books, we pretty much end you know, just as everything is being shipped out of Roswell. And we've compiled, we've put together, again, all the eyewitnesses who were at Wright-Patterson through the years, who were down in the underground vaults and tunnels and hangars and where the autopsies took place and where the bodies were stored and where the wreckage was tested. Even uh, Colonel Robert Friend, who was the second last director of Project Blue Book, he had never admitted this to us in the past, but I had just been with him a couple months ago out in Los Angeles, and he finally confided to me that, yes, I was at Wright Field when the materials came in, and I was aware that the materials were, you know, coming in from Roswell, and I asked him point blank, well, was there any talk that this was a weather balloon? He said, oh, no, 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 no. It was something, you know, really beyond that. Now, he wouldn't admit to me what what it was, but nonetheless, they knew that it was something uh, beyond the pale. That's why it was being brought in the right field for testing, because they didn't know what it was. Is it still there? I mean, no, I say it. Uh, from I mean, all indications, uh, everything was pretty much shipped out in the early 80s. So I guess now the question is, did it go to Area 51? Did it go uh, to some other facility that was much more secretive, much more uh, beyond the scrutiny of the public beyond the press. Uh, Wright Patterson is right, you know, in the middle of Dayton, Ohio. One of the colonels talked to us that they were having a heck of a time bringing materials in and out, you know, for any type of testing, just being in the heart of a city, that they were, you know, coming in late at night as they could. But such a place as 51, you know, out in the middle of the desert, out in the middle of, uh, no, no, Nevada Test Range and Groom Lake, uh, it, it certainly could be a likely candidate. But our book focuses on Wright-Patterson, the long history of the UFO investigation by the Air Force, the different projects, Project Sign, Grudge, and then Blue Book. And then we document and demonstrate that even beyond Blue Book, that there was another investigation that lasted for another five years with the Dr. Jalen Hynek still as a consultant to the project. And the fact that Blue Book was nothing more than a front, it was a PR front, but that there was a hardcore investigation out of Washington. We have the eyewitness testimony. We have the officers who were involved who describe such a project. And we, we, we clearly demonstrate that not only did all roads beyond Roswell lead to Wright Pat, but that it's where they themselves demonstrated and determined that this was a technology off the planet. They never were able to figure it out, 
And as I often like to put it, they never were able to find the on switch to whatever was recovered at Roswell in 1947. Don, always a pleasure. And uh, again, the new book, Inside the Real Area 51, The Secret History of Wright-Patterson. Thank you for this. Well, thank you. And you guys keep up the good work as well. It's always a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Don Schmidt. Uh, and Victor Vigiani, thank you as always. Always a pleasure. All right. You have an upcoming uh, speaking engagement? You yes. Can, uh... We're coming up to one on October 17th at Lakeview Public Library. And then again uh, later on in November, I'll publish those dates as soon as they become final at the Mississauga Central Library. Just outside Toronto. Thank you, Victor. Always a pleasure. Thanks to you, Tim Spreen, for production. Uh, back next week, I think we've got our Gary Patterson, the Fox Mulder of rock and roll lined up to talk about the life and death, strange times of John Lennon. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>